chapter 6. First 14 verses tell this great story, the feeding of the 5,000. And as I mentioned before, it's the only one of the miracles that's in all four Gospels. So that alone should tell us that it's an important passage for us. It's an important thing for us to look at. So let's read a few of the first few verses here. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. And let me just stop there for a quick second and give you a couple of background uh, thoughts that Jesus is, uh, uh, goes to a mountainside. He goes near the Sea of Galilee, which is also the Sea of Tiberias. Which sea is it? Um, it's, we, know it as, we know it. It's actually a huge lake, uh, but we know it as the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it's in the region of Galilee. But when uh, Herod Antipas became the Tetrarch, when he was in charge uh, of that region of Galilee, he renamed this big lake after the emperor and called it Tiberias. So now the Sea of Galilee has been renamed the Sea of Tiberias. But uh, how many of you guys have ever climbed Squaw Peak? You know, right. It's actually not Squaw Peak anymore, is it? It's Piestawa, something like that, right? And yeah, Piestawa Peak. Uh, so it, it's not Squaw Peak, but if you've lived in Phoenix for a long time, it's still Squaw Peak. You think about that all the time. Well, that's the very same thing about the Sea of Galilee. If you grew up there, if you were from Galilee, it was the Sea of Galilee. You still thought of it that way, but it had actually been renamed. So John is, is helping us by just saying, okay, most of you guys think of it as the Sea of Galilee, but just in case, it's, uh, just to remind you, it's been renamed. It's also the Sea of Tiberias. So he wants us to get, uh, be really clear about the place that he's talking about. And then he says that a large crowd was following him because they had seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so Jesus, in this, in this picture, he was taking his disciples. They were going to get away. They were going to get a little rest. But wherever they went, a multitude would be following them, this huge crowd. And John says they're following him because they had seen the signs, because they had seen the, the miracles that Jesus had been doing. And, and so now they're, they're curiosity seekers that they want to see what's the next miracle he's going to do, what's the next sign. But they're probably also people who are sick or there are people who bring family, bringing family members who are sick. And so you get people that are coming with all kinds of needs and, and for all kinds of different reasons. But wherever Jesus went now, there are these huge crowds that are following him. And we get this picture that it's not just a little group of people, but there's a multitude of people. And we'll get a clear picture of that in just a second. But they're there because they've seen the signs that Jesus is doing. Well, Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And now, um, verse four, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, uh, then and seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, the, the scene continues. Jesus goes up on the mountainside and this huge crowd of people follow him. And he looks down. And you know what's really interesting is that in Mark, the sixth chapter, uh, it says that Jesus looked at the multitude. He looked at this crowd of people and it said he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, and I think this is such a, a powerful picture for us because Jesus is getting his disciples away and this huge crowd's fallen. Wherever he goes, he can't get away from them. The disciples can't get away from them. And so here they are on this mountainside and all of this crowd of people comes. But when Jesus sees them, 
He doesn't see them as a problem. He doesn't see them as a pain in the neck. He, he doesn't see them as a disturbance, but he sees them with compassion. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Because I think that sometimes in, in our lives, we, we think about Jesus and how does Jesus see me and that sometimes he, he, just, he sees me as a problem to be solved. He, he sees me as somebody that just doesn't get it. Somebody who still messes up after all of these years, still doesn't get it right. And I can t easily talk myself into thinking that this is how Jesus sees me, but I, I want you to look at this story and I want you to understand how Jesus sees you this morning. He doesn't see you as a problem to be solved. He doesn't see you as somebody who still doesn't get it. But when he looks at you, he looks at you with love and he looks at you with compassion. And that compassion always drives him to act. And so he turns to Philip and he says, uh, where are we going to uh, buy bread so that these people can eat? Now, Philip, uh, he's the one that Jesus talks to because Philip lives nearby in Bethesda, so he knows all the Chick-fil-A's and, you know, all the Pizza Huts and all the places that you would naturally sort of go uh, to get food um, for a big group of people. And, and, but Philip doesn't even answer his question. Philip looks at this crowd of people, and it, it doesn't really matter how many fast food restaurants there are around Bethesda. Uh, we don't have enough money. That, that we couldn't even begin to feed all these people. So when Jesus asks him, where are we going to uh, buy food for all these people? Where are we going to go? Philip says, we don't, what? We don't have enough money. It would cost 200 denarii just to feed this group of people. Now, a denarius uh, was, a, was the common one-day wage for a worker. Uh, it was minimum wage. And so the idea of 200 denarii would be about eight months' wages uh, for a common worker. And so he's saying that we don't have that kind of money. That's eight months wages for somebody just to buy basic food for this whole group. This is impossible. Why would you even be asking me this kind of question? And here's what it says, that, that, uh, that as Andrew is, as Philip is saying this, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Have you ever said something you're really trying to be helpful and while it's coming out of your mouth, you realize it's so dumb that you're right in the middle of it, you're going, why did I say this? So here is this crowd of people, this whole group of people, and Jesus asks Philip, hey, how are we going to feed all of these guys? And, and Philip says, it would cost us so much money. This is impossible. And Andrew says, I, I, there's a boy here with five barley loaves. Why did I say this? This is stupid. Now I've just walked into that one. What are five barley loaves and two fish going to do for this huge crowd of people? And, and not only that, but barley. You see, barley was the food of the poor. If you had money, you would make your bread out of wheat. Only poor people made bread out of barley. That's all they could afford. And, and then these fish... They were pickled, uh, undoubtedly. They were small, and in a, in a wealthier household, uh, they, were, they were only used as a side dish. It was never a main dish. So, so this is a meal for somebody who lives in poverty. This is a meal for someone who is poor. He brings five barley loaves and two fish, and Andrew is really wishing he had never brought this up. Why did I say that? I was just thought it was going to be helpful. This is, this is embarrassing. Well, here's what Jesus does. 
uh, Andrew makes this statement, and then uh, Jesus says in, in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. John's an eyewitness. He just wants us to know. This is what it looked like. There's, we're on a mountainside. There's a lot of grass, and so people can sit down. Uh, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Uh, he, you know, we always have to explain this, but um, it's a patriarchal society. They only counted the men that day, right, that were there. But what it tells us is that there's very likely upwards to 20,000 people that were on the mountainside that day when you start adding all the children and the women that were there, that were present. They, they only counted the men, but there was a multitude of people. There could have been as many as 20,000 people on that mountainside. We've got five barley loaves and two fish. And, J and Jesus says, have them all sit down. And now... Uh, Jesus took, in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. You guys all know this story, but I just like telling it so much that we're gonna repeat it here because you know what happened, right? You've, you're familiar with the story. You grew up listening to it. That, that Jesus has them sit down and he blesses this food and then they start passing it out and everybody gets enough. And not only that, but it says they keep passing it out. Uh, the bread, they pass out. The, the fish, they pass out. And everybody got, in verse 11, as much as they wanted. Everybody was full. Everybody was completely satisfied. They didn't ration it out. They, they didn't say, just take a little bit and let's see how far this goes. But as he started passing it out, everybody got as much food as they wanted. They were full. Nobody left hungry that day. They were completely satisfied with the meal that they had. That's the story. Keep in mind that that's who Jesus is. As we look to see Jesus, we're reminded that it's Jesus who satisfies, it's Jesus who fills. He never does it partially. He never rations it out. He always fills us. He always satisfies us. There's always more than enough. I think sometimes in our lives, we, we think that if, if we wanna get something from God, we gotta hustle in there and we gotta get there before anybody else because they're gonna run out, but Jesus never runs out. There's always more than enough. So much so that it says at the end, uh, Jesus tells him, uh, when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather all the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, 12 baskets with fragments uh, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. When they saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is the prophet who, come in, who comes into the world. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the guy? Well, Jesus uses this sign as a platform for the first of his I am statements. The Gospel of John gives us seven signs uh, about who Jesus is. And then there are seven I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And they are, they are declarations that Jesus made about himself. And so if we go just a little bit further uh, in John 6, uh, and we get to verse 27, Jesus begins to teach them, and he says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which is how Jesus referred to himself, the Son of Man will give you, for on him the God, uh, God the Father has set his seal. 
He said, you know, you like this food and you see this sign, but don't think that it's, it's about this, that it's some, there's something going on that's, that's bigger than this. You've seen this, but don't labor for food that perishes, but go for the real thing. And they said then in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So then they said to him, what sign do you... Uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31, Jesus said, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread. So Jesus begins to talk to them about the real bread. And he says, the father has sent the real bread. This father has, it, has, made it, has delivered it to you. And they're thinking about this and they're thinking, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be awesome if we never had to go to the grocery store again? Wouldn't it be great if we never had to worry about having enough bread, having enough to eat, ha having enough to satisfy us? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just have, the, that God would just provide that sort of magically and it would always show up and, and he even gave them a picture of how it was in Exodus when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they started to complain and they started to, think, to talk about starving to death and God said, no, I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you manna from heaven and manna was this uh, really thin uh, bread that had a taste like honey and a, a, a sweet oil and it covered the ground in the morning and they would pick it up and God gave them a, a warning. He said, only pick up enough for today. Only pick up enough manna for today. I'm gonna give you bread for today. And so all of them that were listening to Jesus, they all knew the story. And then Jesus concludes it with this. He said, the Father has delivered that bread to you. The Father has delivered that eternal bread to you. And here it is. Jesus says to them in verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So there's three points that I want to make in the rest of the sermon this morning. Three things that I'd like you to take home with you. Here's the first one. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life of life. Second point is this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And the third thing Jesus said is, I am the bread of life. Feel a little repetition to you? Yes. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And I am the bread of life. Let's just look at those three things really quickly here. Here's the first thing that he says. I am the bread of life. You see, they all knew about the manna. They'd all been raised with those stories. Every Passover, they talked about them. Every Jewish celebration, they talked about how God had provided that every day, every morning, they would go out and they would collect this bread that God provided, except one morning. You see, God, would, God told them, don't collect more, don't hoard it, don't, don't try to get more than your share because I'm gonna deliver this bread every morning, six days a week, but on the seventh day, on that sixth day, I'm gonna bring you twice as much 
much so that you'll have enough to get through Passover without going out and collecting bread. So six days a week, I'm going to deliver this manna. But don't go out on Monday and try to collect more than your share. Don't go out and try to hoard it. Don't try to go out and get extra because there's only enough for the day. And on Tuesday, that, that if you try to collect extra, it'll spoil because God was giving his people, he was giving us a picture of what it means to trust in him, what it means to rely on him. God says, this isn't about you. This isn't about your ability to hoard. It's not about your ability to collect, but it's about my ability to provide. It's always about him. And we get it confused so fast. We get it turned around so fast that, that God provides something. Then we think it's about how we keep it and, and how we hoard it and how we get more. And he's saying, well, I'm going to provide for you every day. I'm the provider. I am the bread of life. And the manna was a picture of that for them. They, they had another picture. It was called the showbread. And again, in, in the book of Exodus, um, they, they have this picture, they have this story about the tabernacle. They describe the tabernacle for us. And, and, and the tabernacle was the place where the presence of God lived for the Israelites. And inside the tabernacle, there was a special table. It was the table of showbread. And they would put 12 loaves, those flat loaves of bread, uh, on that table of showbread as a reminder of God's provision for them, as a reminder of God's love for them, that God provided bread for them in the wilderness. You see, the thing about bread is that bread, bread was synonymous for, for the sustenance of life. Everybody, when they talked about life and they talked about food, they always talked about bread, that that was the central ingredient. If you were wealthy, maybe you had wheat bread. If you were poor, you would have barley, but everybody ate bread. That was the main course. That's what they all shared in common. They all ate bread. You know, we're so consumed with uh, high protein, low carbs today. We don't think about bread the same way that they, you know, they did then. But bread was central to every meal. Bread was what they all had in common. Bread was what they all shared, and they didn't have a choice in, you know, white and rye and multigrain, and all. they just had bread, and it was barley or wheat, and they would make it, and they had bread was the center of everything, so much so that when you got together for a meal, when you went into a relationship with somebody, you would invite them to your house, and you would share a meal, and what would you do together? You break bread together. That it not only was it the center of life physically, but it was the center of social life as well, the, of, of relationships as well. And Jesus says that I'm going to tell you something that's bigger than that. I'm going to tell you about the real bread. The real bread that satisfies, the real bread that, bread that fills you, the real bread that changes everything in your life. I am the bread of life. And all of those other things have been pictures of who I am. They've been part of that process of discovering who I am, but I am the real bread. In fact, he says, nothing else will satisfy you in your life. Nothing else will really fill you in your life. Everything else is going to spoil. Everything else is going to disappoint, but Jesus is making this bold statement that the only thing that will last, the only thing that will really satisfy your life is this bread, this true bread, who Jesus is. And then he makes the second part of that statement. He says, I am the bread of life. And the word here, the Greeks had two words for life. One was bios, 
and you all get that one, right? It's the physical body. And the other one was zoe, and, and that's not the physical body, but it's kind of a quality of life. It's, it's the life that we lead. It's the life that we have. And when Jesus is saying in this passage, I came that you might have eternal life, he's talking about that kind of life, the quality of life, the life that we lead, the life that we have, real life. And he's saying, do you want to know where real life is? It's in me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that gives meaning to your life. I'm the one that gives sustenance to your life. I'm the one that will satisfy you when nothing else will completely satisfy you. Everything else will spoil. But I'm the life. I'm the bread of life. The third thing that he says is I am. And boy, they all knew this one. You see, Jesus makes seven I am statements in the Gospel of John because they all understand this whole idea uh, of the I am. The great I am, who is God? Remember when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush and, and God has told him to go to Pharaoh and say, release my people, let my people go. And, and Moses is sort of scratching his head and he's going... Um, okay, you want me to go to Pharaoh and tell him I saw a bush that was burning and not consumed and it talked to me. And who am I supposed to tell him you are? And God's response was, tell them that I am. What does that mean? It means that I am before creation. I am right now and I am eternal. That I have no beginning and I have no end. I just am. And in John 8, they're going to talk to Jesus. The religious leaders are going to try to confront Jesus and they're going to try to talk about who he is. And finally, Jesus is going to say, tell them that before Abraham, I am. And that's not just bad grammar. That's Jesus saying that before Abraham existed, before that covenant, I was there. I was there at creation. I am here now and I will always be here that I am the great I am. I've always been, and I always will be. And here is Jesus the Christ telling them, before your father Abraham, I am. Before the creation of the earth, I am. And when all is said and done, I am. He says, I am. The great I am is the bread of life. All of this comes down to me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the eternal. Nothing else. It's so important that C.S. Lewis talked about it this way. He said, most people, if they really learned to look at their own hearts, would know, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. They never quite keep their promise. He goes on to say, is it, is it a relationship? Is it a career? What is it? They never quite keep their promise. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that sustains. I am the one that gives quality. I am the one that satisfies. Everything else will spoil. But I am the bread of life. John 6, verses 28 and 29 again says the crowd, they looked to him and they said, what must, be, uh, what must we do 
to be doing the works of God? That seems like a good question, doesn't it? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And here's what Jesus said. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, they asked him, okay, now we think you're a great prophet. We think you're an important guy. So what must we do now to, 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 to do the works of God? And, and isn't it interesting that Jesus does this great miracle? He makes this statement, I'm the bread of life. And they're saying, okay, but it's still about us. Now, now what do we do? Give me the list of things and I'm gonna do it better than anybody else. I'm gonna do it better than the next guy. I'm gonna show you that I can, I can do all of these things. And so what, what do we do now? to do the works of God. And Jesus says, you don't do anything, you believe. You believe. And when we begin to understand what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to really believe in Jesus, it changes everything in our lives. Because believing means that we have faith. It means that we trust Jesus in spite of what we see. We trust Jesus when we can't see the end, when we can't see the goal, when we can't see the outcome, when we can't see the solution to the challenge and our problems. We still have faith in Jesus. Believing means that we trust him when all else is going wrong, when everything else seems to be on fire, that our trust is in Jesus. Believing means that we organize our lives around who Jesus is. We don't organize our our lives around what we do or who we are or what we can accomplish or what we can hoard or, or what we can uh, gather to ourselves, but we uh, put our trust and our belief in Jesus. We build everything is around who Jesus is and who he is in our lives, and it's centered on him. It's about him, not about us, and, and again, we just, we just switch it so fast, don't we? Okay, Lord, I believe. Now what do you do? What do you want me to do now? I'm ready to go. And here's what Jesus says. I want you to believe. And I want you to know that the second that you think you get this whole belief thing down, the second that you sort of say, I'm a believer, I got it, I really believe, then something in life is gonna happen to you some challenge is gonna come your way and you're gonna to have to decide all over again, do I really believe in Jesus? Do I really trust him? Is he really the center of my life? Is all of this really true? Because it's built around God's love for us. It's built around the fact that only he will satisfy. He died on a cross for us. He rose again. We have those things to stand on. And he says, now I want you to believe in me. And everything you do, every decision you make is built around, do I believe in him? Do I believe in Jesus? Because here's the thing, if you believe in Jesus, then he's the center of your life. He's the most important person in your life. If you're really gonna believe in Jesus, then everything is gonna be built around who Jesus is in your lives. And that's why it's so hard, isn't it? It's why it's so complicated because we're constantly bumping up against ways that we're more important or we think we're more important or our circumstances are more important, more difficult. Believing isn't simply accepting, but it's also trusting. Believing says, I'll commit my life to the truth of this. I'll trust Jesus with everything that I have, everything that I'll ever be, the easy things, the hard things. I'll believe in Jesus. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me, shall never thirst. He says, whoever comes to me will not hunger. But we come to Jesus and he fills us. He promises us. 
He sends his spirit to live inside of us and he says, you'll never be hungry. And whoever drinks of me, you'll never be thirsty that I will satisfy your life. And here's the cool thing for us this morning is that he is saying, just like the manna, he is saying, look, you can come to me every day and I will feed you. You can come to me every day and I will fill you that I'll become more real in your life. In fact, he says, I want you to come. I'm inviting you to come to me every single day of your life and let me fill you, let me satisfy you. There's a great quote that I thought it was Paderewski and I looked it up, my myth busters, and it wasn't. Um, it was uh, a guy named Heifetz, uh, Yasha Heifetz, and he was a famous violinist a uh, world-famous violinist, child prodigy, and he said one time that when I don't practice, I notice. When I don't practice one day, I notice. When I don't practice two days, the critics notice it. When I don't practice three days, the audience notices it. And isn't that true in our lives that when it comes to, to, to feasting, when it comes to feeding on who Christ is, when it comes to being in his word and, and in prayer and, and allowing him to satisfy that, that when we skip a day, we know it in our lives. And when we skip two days, our critics notice it. And when we skip three days, everybody notices it because we're not the same. We start chasing after things that we know we shouldn't chase after. We start trying to hoard things that we know we shouldn't hoard. We start behaving in ways that we know we shouldn't behave and he is saying what I want for you I want to satisfy you I want to fill you come to me he just wants us to come to him this morning allow him to satisfy us I was at a dinner the other night and I was sitting with some guys and uh, it was so interesting as we were eating dinner um, this topic of food ironically came up and uh, one of the guys started talking about he was in a you know high protein, low carb diet. These are grown men, okay, we're sitting around a table. The other guy said he was a juicer and that's how he got his vegetables. He'd put them all in a big thing and he'd juice them and he'd mix them all up, you know. And, and uh, another guy at the table, might have been me, said that he took supplements. And talk, we talked about supplements and we talked about high protein, low carbs. We talked about juicing. We talked about supplements. We talked about all this stuff, how much trouble we go to uh, all of these things that we put into our body and how we work so hard to stay healthy and all of those things. And so here's the question this morning. What would happen in our lives if we were as intentional about feeding on Christ, about having the word of God uh, in our lives? What if we were as intentional about taking in Jesus as we are our diet? our juices, our supplements? What if that was as much a center of our lives? What if we gave the same kind of attention to bring in, to give in our lives to Jesus, to letting him fill us, to let him satisfy as we do all those other things in our lives? What do you think would happen to your life? Let's pray. Lord, I love you this morning. We give you thanks for your word. Lord, you are the bread of life. And the truth is that nothing else will ever completely satisfy us. Nothing will completely fill us. 
And so, Lord, we confess that, that we give so much energy to filling ourselves with other things and to gathering other things and all of that, Lord, um, that we miss you. And because of that, Lord, we're weak. Uh, because of that, Lord, we hunger. Uh, Lord, and it's only you that can satisfy. And so, Lord, it, where we need to be convicted in this, I pray that you convict us this morning. And uh, Lord, where we need to be encouraged, please encourage us this morning. But Lord, we acknowledge that you're the bread of life. We acknowledge that you satisfy. We acknowledge that you give eternal life. Lord, we acknowledge all of that this morning. And Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.